0: I'm Mike Merson. I'm the director of the Global Health Institute, and it's my job to welcome all of you here this evening, um, many new friends and old friends. It's a, uh, as our keynote speaker, I think he knew half the people in the audience as they walked in. And I should tell you all that his son works in the Triangle, and we welcome his son here, Mark, as well. Uh, it's really a pleasure to welcome all of you here. Uh, I want to just really first start by um, thanking some people who have made this possible. And the first, of course, is our keynote speaker, uh, who Chancellor Zhao will introduce, uh, Francis Omaswa, who's the executive director of the Global Health Workforce Alliance of WHO. Uh, WHO is a co sponsor of tomorrow's conference, the African Healthcare Worker Shortage Forum on private sector responses. Secondly, I want to thank the Rockefeller Foundation, whose generosity helped support this conference. And I haven't seen Dr. Miriam Rapkin. I don't know if there you are. Thank you very much. Uh, To the Rockefeller Foundation for supporting this conference. So um, uh, your contribution really made this able to happen, and particularly to bring our colleagues here from the African continent. So thank you. Next, I would uh, like to thank Drs. Jeffrey Moe and Kevin Schulman from the Health Sector Management Program here at Fuqua, and their dean, Blair Shepherd, for their vision and leadership in organizing today's lecture and the conference. Um, as you will hear and see uh, while you're here, Fuqua's Health Sector Management Program is dedicated to reducing health disparities, building leadership, and promoting social responsibility. It was only one month after I arrived here at Duke a little over a year ago that Jeff and Kevin approached me with the idea of holding this conference. Um, Together, we look forward to seeing how uh, the deliberations over the next two days will help influence future directions and priorities for tackling the health worker shortage in Africa. Our institute, the Duke Global Health Institute, is delighted to be co-hosting this conference. Our mission is to reduce, reduce health disparities in our local community and worldwide. The African healthcare worker shortage is a perfect example of how structural inequalities lead to staggering health disparities. It's also an excellent illustration of how a highly complex global health problem requires a multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral approach for its solution, and this kind of approach is the trademark of our new institute. I am sure that after you hear Francis's remarks this evening, you will have no doubt that the workforce shortage in Africa is a real public health crisis. The consequence of this crisis are formidable. Africa is struggling to fight against infectious diseases, meet the Millennium Development Goals and prepare itself for the emergence of chronic diseases and the looming health consequences of climate change. One of the health problems on which the health worker shortage is having perhaps the greatest impact, of course, is HIV AIDS. Now there's some recent good news on this front. More than 1.3 million people living in sub-Saharan Africa, are now receiving antiretroviral treatment compared to about 100,000 people four years ago. Much of this success can be attributed to the United States President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. And we are delighted that Tom Kenyon from PEPFAR is with us this evening and will be speaking at the conference dinner tomorrow evening. But even with this progress, more work must be done. There remains the other 70% of those living in sub-Saharan Africa who need life-saving drugs. There remains the need for stronger programs to prevent new infections. And there remains the fact that while improved sampling methodology has lowered the number of persons infected with HIV worldwide by 20%, there are still 33 million persons infected with HIV worldwide and millions of needless deaths from this disease. Why am I saying this? Well, one reason is because this Saturday, December 1st, we will observe World AIDS Day for the 29th year. This year, World AIDS Day theme is leadership, highlighting the need for innovation, vision, and perseverance in the face of the AIDS challenge. This theme must include leadership that addresses the healthcare worker crisis and the mostly untapped potential of the private sector. Of course, by private sector, I include civil society, faith-based organizations, businesses, and yes, universities. As I am sure we will hear from our keynote speaker, there's an increasing realization that the private sector can work alongside governments and offer much needed resources, knowledge, and skills to improve the quality and increase the utilization of health services and expand the supply of goods and services. So as we contemplate during this conference the health worker shortage, the absence and the crisis, let us do more than dwell over the world's inadequacies. Let us also think about our own resourcefulness, the potential for partnerships, and the hope and opportunity for us to find solutions. This is the goal of our conference. It is now a great privilege that I introduce you to Dr. Victor Zell, Chancellor for Health Affairs for Duke University and the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Duke University Health System. Dr. Zhao is a world-class cardiologist and basic science researcher and knows a great deal about resourcefulness, building partnerships and creating opportunities to address health health disparities around the world. During his time at Duke, he has combined the various parts of Duke Medicine into a well-coordinated system that makes the most of what all its parts have to offer enabling the university and health system to contribute maximally to its patients and to society locally and globally. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Victor Zao who will introduce our keynote speaker.
1: Thank you Mike and good evening, Uh, welcome. Uh, I'm Victor Zhao. As you heard, I'm the Chancellor of Health Affairs at Duke University. It's really a great honor for me to welcome you to this very timely and important forum on this worldwide shortage of healthcare workers. It's a really significant problem, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, where we'll discuss the ramifications and strategies to address this shortage. Now this forum is the culmination of many months of hard work and effort from faculty, staff, students across university. And I too would like to especially thank the following groups for taking the lead on this uh, particular program. Uh, Duke Global Health Institute that Mike Merson so effectively runs; the Health Sector Management forum Program at the Fuqua School of Business, particularly with Kevin Schulman's leadership, the Rockefeller Foundation, you heard, that provided a grant to support the conference. And of course, I'd like to recognize one of Duke's most important supporters, that is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is represented in this forum by Kathy Cahill, who will, in fact, be leading a conference panel. And thank you, Kathy. i also like to recognize our special guests from Africa who have traveled here to share their stories with us. I think these stories you find are going to be extremely informative and touching. And I want to welcome all of you to Durham and Duke University. Now Mike asked me to frame the issue, and I think many of you are really knowledgeable. But if you humor me, I'd like to at least frame the issue for this conference. The WHO estimates that there are currently 2.4 million too few doctors, nurses, midwives worldwide. And imagine a town that is 10 times the size of Durham, is where we are, filling it only with healthcare workers. And that's about how many people it would take to eliminate the worldwide shortage of healthcare workers, it's a staggering number. And I brag about the fact that we at Duke Health System, Duke University is the fourth largest employer of North Carolina we employ about 25000 so that's a hundredfold num- number of people that's needed to address this shortage problem the challenge of course is the greatest in sub saharan africa which has only 3% of the world's health workers yet 24% of the global burden of disease so it doesn't take a scientist or genius to figure out this great discre- discrepancy The absence of health workers in sub-Saharan Africa has left behind a severely strained health system forced to cope with an unjust burden of disease. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about what Duke is doing. After all, it's my job, it's my my institution. And for decades, members of Duke community have shared a passion for addressing such health disparities both in our community here in Durham, but also throughout the world. One of Duke's most fundamental and noble mission is to take the knowledge of that of our students, our faculty, our staff, the ones that develop, and use it to improve the lives and the well-being of patients around the world. We committed to strengthening health systems locally and globally. So in December 2004, Provost Lang and I convened a university-wide steering committee to advise us, how do we organize Duke? Because there already was, and still is, lots of activities all over globally to look at health disparities. But our question is, how how do we organize Duke, the academic community, to address this challenge of global health? And it was very easy, because there was so much passion, we only had to get the people together catalyzes, and throw a little money, because that's always important. And the committee proposed the establishment of a university-wide institute, the Duke Global Health Institute, to mobilize the health expertise of the entire university to strengthen and enhance programs in research, education, service, and policy. This institute is now up and running, and it's really, I think you see some of the examples you saw today, and you see that together with, in fact, the business school, it's really trying to address many of the important issues. And what Mike is doing is truly impressive. Uh, recruiting, building programs, and really, I think what I find most important is the passion that our young students show, not only medical students, but undergraduate students. Because it is our belief that if you are to able to influence this whole generation of students, 24,000 new people are driving every day, or maybe my numbers are wrong. I don't know how many are entering, in fact, into undergraduate throughout the United States or worldwide. You can really change the world if all of them believe in it. Now, the medical school has a long history of work in Africa. In 1986, the Department of Medicine's division of infectious diseases founded the program of international health and formed a collaboration between Duke and Muhimbili Medical Center in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. As a result of this collaboration and its successor at uh, the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center in Moshi, Tanzania, more than 60 physicians have received research and clinical training in tropical medicine. And subsequently, collaborations have been established at 11 additional sites around the world. Through the auspices of the Hubert Juergen Center for Global Health here at Duke, directed by Ralph Corey, hundreds of students, residents, and fellows and attending physicians have spent extended time participating in research and education in the developing world. Our efforts at KCMC and MOSHI under the direction of John Bartlett have focused on clinical research to improve treatment of HIV infection and opportunistic infections. For example, Nathan Thurman have recently reported free voluntary HIV counseling and testing in MOSHI. Today, faculty from at least six departments in our medical school and from our nursing school and the public policy, environment, and engineering school are involved in various training and research activities in MOSHI. Also, this year, I think you'll be interested to hear that Duke Health System and the Global Health Institute, partnered to start a new program. It's called Duke Global Health Plus. uh, Plus stands for Placement of Life-Saving Usable Surplus. And it's a long story, a great story I'd like to tell you, but I won't have the time except to say that one of our neurosurgeons, Dr. Mike Haglund, actually uh, went to um, Uganda, uh, in fact, in the new Mulago Hospital in Kampala. And he came back and say, we need equipments over there to set up surgical units, ICU. And so Mike and I talked to our procurement officer, and I then realized that we're selling our secondhand equipments. And it was very easy, quite frankly, for us to say, let's give it away. And now we have a program which we give away all surplus equipments from the health system at, you know, obviously through some kind of selection process. But I think, really, this is the kind of passion you can imagine when people bring to us, we have a chance to respond. And I think it's very exciting indeed. Uh, Dr. Hagelin is planning to return next year to establish a new neurosurgery center training in East Africa. We have a number of initiatives in Kenya. I want to mention two of them. First, we provide support to Actually Carolina, our sister institution for Kyberia a program originally initiated and established by UNC leadership, and uh, we have therefore continued to work with them now to strengthen community development and youth leadership in larger Kiberia slum of Nairobi. Uh, also, we have recently joined the, Ameri- the America Sub-Sahara African Network for Training, Education, Medicine, El Sante Consortium at Moy University in Eldoret. Jeff Wilkinson from the Department of OBGYN will be moving there this summer to establish a reproductive health program. And I don't really want to belabor you, of course, take any more time from our keynote speaker except to tell you we're truly, truly committed. I do want to mention, however, that Kay Wetton and the, the Center for Health Policy has been working also internationally in a whole number of sites and our Human Vaccine Institute have established of course through the help of Melinda and Gates Foundation and uh, Bill Gates uh, the HIV AIDS vaccine uh, programs and again it is undertaking studies everywhere in Africa. And of course Kathy Simka from the School of Nursing is working with collaborators to develop those sites for HIV vaccine and adolescent population. We're interested in many issues globally. I know that Mike Merson is now working with China, the Peking University Health Sciences Center, to develop a strategic management issue in both global health and health sector management, which leads me to the School of Fuqua Business School, which is co-sponsoring this conference. I know they are firmly committed to strengthening healthcare systems throughout the world through their expertise, and the Duke Health Sector Management Concentration, largest program of its kind, among the top tier business schools. And their global executive program options combines unique residential sessions in Africa, South, uh, South America, Europe, and United States, and internet-based distant learning, allowing students to live and work anywhere in the world. And I think this is a very impressive program. So the severe health sh- uh, workforce crisis in Africa is a major obstacle when you hear about all these possibilities but to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, TB, maternal and child mortality and other diseases, I think we need to address this issue of health uh, workforce crisis. And the Health Sector Management Program and Global Health are passionate about finding ways to address this shortage. It's really hard to save lives. You can't get the medicines and treatment into the hands of those who need them. So we're delighted, in fact, to have a distinguished Dr. Omaswa here because he can provide you with a first-hand knowledge and account of the problem as well as some of the possible solutions. We hope that insights and recommendations from tomorrow's conference will be used at Dr. Omaswa's Global Health Workforce Alliance Conference, which is going to be held in Kampala in March 2008. So now it gives you great pleasure to introduce Dr. Francis O'Maswa. I was reading all the things he's done, and he's truly an impressive man who has a great passion for doing right things. He's currently the executive director of Global Health Workforce Alliance that was launched in May 2006. The Global Health Workforce Alliance is a partnership that's dedicated to identifying and providing solutions to the global health workforce crisis and the secretariat is provided by WHO. Before joining the Alliance in June 2005, Dr. Omaswa was the Director General for Health Services in the Ministry of Health in Uganda for seven years, during which time he was responsible for coordinating the major reforms in the health sector in Uganda. Prior to that, he was the chief surgeon. I understand you're a cardiac thoracic surgeon like I'm a cardiologist, head of the Quality Assurance Program and director of Uganda Heart Institute, and in the Ministry of Health, and also in the Macri University in Uganda. At a global level, he was closely observed, uh, involved with the establishment of the Global Stop TB Partnership, and was vice chairman of its coordinating board. He is one of the architects of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, and serve as the Chair of Portfolio and Procurement Committee of its board. Dr. Omaswa is a graduate of Makerere Medical School, Kampala, Uganda, a Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and Founding President of the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa as a Senior Associate at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Seems like you ought to be working with us as well. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you, uh, Dr. Maswa, the director of WHO's also uh, Global Health Workforce Alliance. And uh, the title of your presentation is Abundance of Disease, Absence of Health Workers, Crisis, Hope, and Opportunity in Sub-Saharan Africa. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Victor, for those uh, words of uh, introduction and for the warm welcome that uh, you've extended to me uh, today uh, in uh, your uh, great institution. I recall it's uh, more than a year now, just over a year or not yet a year, when Mike Mason uh, dropped into my office in uh, WHO Geneva and uh, introduced uh, the idea of uh, this meeting today. It was not so difficult for him to persuade me to agree to co-host this meeting uh, on the private sector and the health workforce crisis in Africa. Uh, Before uh, that, uh, I think uh, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, had sent uh, individuals from the organization to ask what they could do with the Global Health Workforce Alliance. And we were also in the process of uh, designing a memorandum of understanding with WHO, Uh, that is to say the partners leading the alliance. And there was the issue as to whether uh, we would be able to agree with WHO to work with the private sector. But uh, we did succeed in having a clause there, which uh, uh, does permit the alliance to engage and work together with the private sector. Indeed, on our board, uh, what is she? I'm glad to uh, mention again, Cathy Cahill from Gates. Ah, there she is. Uh, uh, and um, uh, we are hoping that as a result of this meeting, we will really be moving forward closer and in more concrete ways with the private sector. I also want at the outset to again thank, uh, uh, of course, Mike, uh, Blair, uh, Kevin, uh, Bill and Robin, Gilia, and um, the many others who have made it possible for me to come here. My plane which brought me, after five airports did not bring my bag. (laughs) And uh, Bill managed to find an African comb for me to comb my hair (laughs) (laughs) Uh, last night. Uh, And also uh, Mark, my son, for taking the trouble to come to listen to this talk. So um, now I will divide the Time I was given, said 40, 45 minutes into three parts. I will speak uh, about the African health and development crisis for a third of the time. The other third, describe the global health workforce crisis and what uh, the Global Workforce Alliance with partners is uh, uh, doing to address it. And then spend the remaining 15 minutes on. Uh, how the private sector might consider uh, contributing to addressing this crisis, particularly in Africa. And uh, the uh, message today, uh, this is uh, not uh, like being in a, a church or something like that, but I will really be wanting to share with you the message that Sub-Saharan Africa is actually gripped. Uh, by very serious, truly serious unprecedented health and development crisis. I will tell you about the hope that exists and is uh, uh, apparent today, calling for all hands on deck and how the private sector has a key role to play. Um, The Africa which I have seen, the Africa in which I grew up in, sort of after the Second World War, going into independence for many African countries was a very, very hopeful Africa. We had a good education, more from missionaries than from the colonial government which was in, but there was stability, there was prosperity and independence was coming and there was hope that we would be able to jump even faster after independence and telescope the centuries which other people had gone through like in this country, Europe and elsewhere. And um, true, at that time, some considerable progress was made before independence, even after independence. And that time of hope ended up – that's how I became a cardiothoracic surgeon because it was thought that that was really where we would be going. But then it didn't happen. Africa at that time was the same in some African countries, even better than places like South Korea, which now is a donor to Africa. So those. Asian countries took one route, Africa took another route. African things did not go well. As I was uh, completing my training as a cardiac surgeon in England, of course, Amin was still in Uganda. And we in Uganda thought that our decline was due to Amin. Very good. absolves us of some responsibility. But Amin or no Amin, Uganda, would have got into problems, just like the other countries around in sub-Saharan Africa, which did not make very much progress. What are the reasons for this would be a topic for a long lecture. But some of the explanations, one, the Cold War was a big factor in allowing bad governance to survive in Africa. If one leader got upset with the West, he went to the East and was well received there. He got upset with the East, he came to the West and was well received there, to provide votes at the UN and so on, and uh, uh, part of the bad governance of that season was very much, had very much to do with the Cold War. But there was also the issue of collapse of commodity prices, um, cotton, cocoa, coffee, Of course, Africa was surviving mainly on those. Those prices collapsed, African economies collapsed, and there is, as I speak, even today, maybe if you leave out the mineral rich countries, uh, Botswana, and uh, even some mineral rich countries, uh, Botswana, South Africa, those may be the really only two countries which can pay their way. But the others, other countries have been reduced to being beggars. And um, along with this came new diseases, AIDS. It's now, is it 30 years old or something like that? And it has wreaked havoc. Uh, TB has come back with AIDS. <laughs> Sleeping sickness, which we had got on top of because of the bad governance and uh, upheavals. Uh, it did come back badly. Malaria because of climate change. Communities which did not have malaria, highland communities are dying in large numbers from malaria epidemics. And um, because of having no money of our own, um, we are now being led by other people who have got money. Ideas which you would like to implement because you know the local situation are very difficult to sell if you are using other people's money they will rather do what they believe will achieve the results not what you the owner of the problem uh, believes will achieve with the the, so that's a a big problem and uh, it is been with that type of problem that uh, I will be showing you later what has happened. But it seems over the last maybe almost two decades now, 15 years, 10 years, more for some countries, Africa is looking better. Africa is looking more promising. The economic growth has been reported over the last f- five years to be now averaging maybe 5% for many countries. Africans have thrown out dictators, a lot of those dictators who were playing around with the Cold War. uh, Immediately the Cold War went, many of them were either voted out or or thrown out by by political forces. And uh, there is more and more transparency, calls for, uh, for transparency, accountability. African civil society is getting stronger. And uh, with this new era of hope, we are here discussing how we can help Africa. And I think, it, to me personally, I believe that uh, uh, the failures which we got, went through immediately after independence, this is the second opportunity that we have, and let's see whether we can make something better with this second opportunity. So those are the diseases which uh, are causing havoc in Africa. HIV/AIDS. Of course, is that the lead? Whoop. Uh, <coughs> HIV/AIDS is at the the lead, and uh, you will notice that uh, most of them are preventable diseases. Apart from some of the maternal conditions, there even those largely are preventable, and uh, children. Uh, are dying mainly also from these preventable diseases. But I should also point out that it's not listed here. Non-communicable diseases are emerging as a major problem in Africa. Diabetes, for example, is a very big problem even in rural areas. Cardiovascular disease is hitting people like me. I know a number of colleagues who have gone down with uh, ischemic heart disease, uh, and so on. So Africa is facing a double burden of disease, uh, infectious diseases and the emerging non-communicable diseases. And uh, look at that, life expectancy. Other people are living longer and longer, almost in luxury. But people in Africa, uh, some of the countries now there are uh, life expectancies below 40 years of age, 35, and so on. But a lot of it has to do with HIV AIDS. Now, with all these deaths, uh, now I live in Geneva these days, but when I used to live in uh, uh, Uganda, uh, up to is it, uh, almost three years ago, attending funerals was routine, normal. And we go to these funerals, and we <coughs> console each other. And these people have accepted all that death. Say it's a child, a year old, five years old, dies of malaria. And they say God has called the child. A woman dies in labor, it's a hard day. You know, what can you do? And that's the level of despondency which has come about. And. Um, some time ago, um, I, I wrote in a speech for President Musevenet those type of words, and then he stopped reading and said, what about Japanese? Does God not love Japanese? How does, it, how does he wait for Japanese to reach 85 years of age? <laughs> and then he calls up Africans at that, such a young age. And also this, um, uh, this statement here, um, uh, 2003, we, uh, a new head of the African Union. African Union is now new. In the past, it was the organization of African unity. Did a lot to get independence and defeat apartheid and all that, but did hardly anything about the quality of life of their, the, the people. But the new head with the new AU, uh, they called us to talk about uh, how uh, the new Africa, Africa of the 21st century, could uh, uh, make a new beginning for Africans. And this is, uh, uh, this was what I I, I was telling them. I was uh, making the speech for health. This is, uh, we, we must feel the shame for what's happening and get to move ourselves. And it is true African Union is taking concrete steps now to call upon countries. There is what is called peer review mechanism. Uh, what are you doing for democracy in your country? What are you doing to fulfill a certain minimum uh, to respond to HIV, AIDS, to malaria? So uh, the things are bad, but also there is hope. Now, one good thing about health is that the people themselves, poor people, appreciate the importance of health. Because to many of them, the only asset they may have is really their good health. A man or a woman gets up in the morning, goes to be employed by someone to chop firewood or to do something in the garden or in a shop, and takes home at the end of that day. So that person, if they are ill for one day, it's a big issue. It's a very big problem. So when there are these, these things are called uh, but, uh, poverty, uh, participatory poverty assessment surveys, they are carried out routinely uh, in, uh, I don't know whether they are done here, but I certainly know they are done in uh, the African countries. Uh, you go to a market where rural people are and you may take them under a tree and you ask them some questions about their poverty. And in the survey for Uganda for 202, this is what it coughed up. So if you asked people what are the causes of your poverty, the majority response was poor health and diseases. And if you turn the question round and you say, sorry, my friend, that you are so poor, what do you think is most likely to happen to you? And on the other side? They will tell you again, most frequent uh, response, um, likely to get ill, and maybe I will even die. It's interesting to look at the others also, but uh, it's uh, for another day, but it's important to also see what poor people think are their problems. So when then it is time to campaign for health, it is not difficult to persuade people uh, in the in poor countries uh, that uh, health should be supported. And it is a a good background position to start from. And that's MDGs. Um, If you look at the last decade, infant mortality in most African countries has stagnated. Maternal mortality has got worse. Life expectancy has collapsed. So achieving MDGs is a big challenge for most Sub Saharan African countries. And it's been a background of neglect. I told you about not having our own money. And look at this if you compare, uh, what is your country there? And then these other people are running their health services without money. And how can you achieve that? And yet, in the past, the good days which I told you about, um, when I graduated uh, some 30 years ago, on its own resources, the government of Uganda, it was post-independence, was able to pay me a salary. On that salary alone, without any other supplements, I was able to buy a car on higher purchase. I was able to build a house in the kraal of my parents and there were no donors in Uganda at that time and not just Uganda but you know we all we went to the same university for East Africa the, everyone went back home to Tanzania to Kenya to Zanzibar in a great hurry and the same as I described to you was the case in those countries as well but today A person graduating from the same school like I did in Uganda, I know, I think Tanzania as well, probably Kenya too, they can't live on their salary. And the health facilities are struggling to to, to survive. So uh, that is uh, as bad as it is. And then this is national health accounts for a country, who who spends, where does the resources come for providing for health. And you can again see here that um, uh, households, even the poor, as poor as they are, uh, they are the ones who generally pay for their health. Also note uh, here, uh, this is the NGO, the Missionary Hospitals and uh, Health Care facilities. They are providing quite a significant amount of uh, uh, health care. So, the private sector, if you add the two, they probably are uh, providing a little the same or under the households. Uh, But the public sector is not providing as much uh, health care spending as we would expect. You saw the figure which you don't show on the radar. So this is good to keep on board as we discuss this subject. That is the human resources for health um, discussion. Um, I think many of you are familiar with that map. WHO World Health Report of 2006, which was released the same time as we launched the alliance, showed that uh, 57 countries, have got such critical shortages of health workers that they are not able to provide basic care for their own people. And 36 of these countries are in sub-Saharan Africa. And there are few on the Americas as well. And the others are in Southeast Asia. And uh, Victor, you've already talked about this. Um, very few health workers and a disproportionate burden of disease for Africa. Um, And uh, the global context in relation to the workforce crisis is significant and we need to keep it on board. This part of the world, people are living longer. They need more care. They need more health workers. Our part of the world, I've shown you the disease burden which is increased and they need more health workers and there is a global shortage. And it's been neglected. The long history of neglect is real. Uh, If uh, even, uh, let's say, five, six, ten years ago, uh, as an African health services manager, I would go to a donor and discuss about uh, supporting the health workforce. And they would say, no, no, that's for the government only, not not for us. So we've come a long way. And of course, this global situation is impacting on Africa in a big way. With that neglect, the best people are leaving the so called brain drain. And they leave the rural areas, they come to the urban areas. From the urban areas, they come to America and the UK and other places. Uh, and um, oh, because of the crisis, uh, a, a lot has happened the last few years, five years in particular. Um, for three consecutive World Health Assemblies, I think two zero four, two zero five, two zero six, the WHO system, there is an agenda which is developed by the Executive Board and then that agenda is tabled and everyone comes to the meeting with that agenda. But for those three years, uh, these, uh, the African ministers did not have uh, to wait for that agenda. They came and just said, We want to discuss this. This resolution must be passed on health workforce. Uh, you know, the, you are stealing our health workers. You must do something about it. So uh, uh, that is um, uh, something which uh, is uh, worth noting. I think I should go back and just point at this. Um, We'll talk about this a bit more, but uh, this is also something which is a, 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 a cause for hope. You know, never before has the world had so much wealth, so much knowledge, so much technology, and we are connected. But then there are so many inequalities among the people of the world. Is this not something we can do something about? And that's the vision of the Global Health Workforce Alliance. JW Lee, the last uh, high-level forum on health-related MDGs in Paris. This was uh, unscripted. He just brought this out of the blue. And uh, that's our vision. And every word there is very important indeed. Motivated, skilled, and supported health workers. in sub-Saharan Africa have been taken for granted. They work long hours and when they work badly they are blamed as thieves because they are coping. Nobody is paying them. And yet the same people when they come to America they go and work in another place in Saudi Arabia. They are praised as very good workers. The same people. So those issues need to be borne in mind. And... um, Again, back to this new hope. Uh, I've told you about uh, the, the, you know, this is uh, social justice. When the G8 meet, you see those hordes of people who are jumping fences and doing everything to try and pass messages to them. There is a global movement on social justice. And I've told you about uh, accountability and transparency before. And this one also is important. this, this one here, health, SARS, drew our attention to this. When that SARS epidemic came through, economies of some countries were in big trouble. Everyone was in trouble. And these days, I think the, the, the World Health Report from WHO on global security is about a, a disease as a, a, a global threat and an economic issue. There is a movement. Uh, I think led by Norway, but a number of other countries also on it, health as a foreign, uh, a, a foreign policy issue. So we are getting there. We are getting there. Health is gaining its place as uh, a, a requirement uh, for uh, a basic uh, human rights. And, uh, you know, I've been speaking around doing this job for the last two years. And I hear this very regularly. Today I heard that even here at Duke, young people are talking about global health. They want to become part of the global movement and to make a contribution. And uh, that too is a big and strong foundation for our hopes for the future. Um, Yes, uh, uh, this again, is really very important. Uh, When the Declaration of uh, Human Rights is also celebrating, I think, 60 years this year. WHO also has 60 years, and so on. But some of these have just been on paper. Why should you be alive if you are living such a miserable life? You are living, you are suffering, not living. So the fact that we should reject those statements I showed you before, you know, God has called the child. We really must uh, get African leaders themselves to stop going to funerals and say that God has called the child. They should be going there to say, we have taken away this child's right. So this, this uh, movement it can help us in advocating uh, mainly uh, for politics. Because political, it, it's, the, it's politics which determines everything. Uh, two weeks ago, I was uh, in Kenya uh, helping as a facilitator between donors and the government there, and reading the newspapers, they are electing a president soon, uh, I think it will be bef- this year, before, b- before the end of the year. And um, one of the candidates, he had five points, and two of those... Uh, You know, vote me, if you vote me, I will do this. One of the five was free treatment for children, and the other one was free uh, maternity services, one of the presidential candidates. So that if these issues, like in your country, like in uh, other developed countries, becomes an issue on which African leaders either win votes or lose elections, then we should be getting there. And this is, uh, uh, where is, which one is it? Uh, uh, this one here. A colleague of uh, mine, you can look this up. It's in the Lancet. I think that's the title of uh, the, the, the comment which he wrote about three years ago. As a guy called Sam Okonzi, Because each year we go to the Ministry of Finance during the budget cycle to negotiate for money. It's very difficult to get money. They tell us that uh, uh, even when donors give us money, they sometimes would park the money in the central bank because they say this additional money will strengthen the local currency, a strong local currency would not support the private sector and we must uh, – uh, I will be telling you about uh, private sector economic growth. And it ends up saying, okay, what about the people who are dying today? Are we going to wait until another 20 years? when the economy is strong enough to do this. So that's a a big debate which is going on. But we are told that other countries like the UK, uh, immediately after the World War, they were also poor. They didn't have, uh, uh, their economy had been devastated by the war. But they provided basic social services, including milk for children and fruits and so on. So uh, we try to persuade our people that even as poor as we are, There are certain minima that we must meet in terms of the quality of life of people. So can economic growth live side by side with providing basic health care? And that's the question. Where are the economists who can give us answers to this? I'm looking for them. I've been looking for them for a long time. Maybe Duke University can help us with uh, 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 getting answers to this. Um, Well, I don't think I should spend much more time on this except to uh, 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 draw your attention to a growing movement on health and development. A lot of things are happening. Of course, all this is about women and women are at the center of this. The G8, most of their uh, recent meetings have got uh, bits on health. and. uh, the, our advocacy group, um, uh, Eric Friedman is not here, but uh, he sh- I was hoping that he would be here, Physicians for Human Rights. We've been helping to introduce paragraphs on the resolutions of G8 on health and human resources. And global health initiatives like uh, Global Fund, United. all these are new and they are a response to this crisis, and which is a sign of hope. Um, and uh, the, the UK launched something, it's a global health partnership, in something. Uh, the French also have something providing for health. Canadians have something, no a global business plan. All this uh, are there. And uh, did I have the African Union also here? the African Union Heads of State and Ministers of Health, First, uh, uh, adopted a new health strategy just in uh, the ministers in April, the heads of state in June. So uh, there is hope, there is hope for the future. So the Global Health Workforce Alliance um, was created really to bring actors together on the health workforce and the key deliverables and work areas. Advocacy is very important. Visibility of this crisis is important. We don't want it to drop out of the radar. It was neglected in the past. We have uh, a working group on migration. Uh, Why do people leave their countries? Why are there vacancies in countries like this for these people to come to? What are we doing about your own self-sufficiency? And then, thirdly, uh, to propose and negotiate a global code of best practice for managing health worker migration knowing that it's inevitable uh, we've uh, completed the work working uh, on tools which countries can use for making country plans uh, this group on how to uh, what skill mix for the 21st century uh, how to train in innovative ways and what can the global community do these two task forces are just being formed on financing and HIV-AIDS, as you saw, is a big big threat and it needs its own uh, way of making it uh, achieve its goals without causing problems to the other parts of the health sector. And this is what we recommend broadly for countries to address the scale-up of their health workforces and, of course, its health outcomes. You can't do everything. So each country determines their burden of disease and defines a basic minimum package which they want to deliver to their people and develops a skill mix or which responds to that minimum package and get these people to stay as near to the communities as possible. JW Lee's thing there. But all this needs technical input, political work, and money. And this is the uh, health system pyramid. And uh, here, there is room for all players. I can see the private sector could play a role there in providing uh, tertiary healthcare, uh, even at this level, all the levels actually, but uh, vertical programs, this slide was really made to show how the Stop TB Partnership, I made it for them. The Stop TB partnership can contribute to health system strengthening, but it can be used across the board. And that's what the Workforce Alliance hopes to deliver. It's got a 10-year a lifespan starting from last year. Basically, more countries uh, excelling in their health workforce development. Evidence, knowledge is weak in this area. Again, Duke can help here. Is we got very little knowledge as to what works, what doesn't work. And as we move forward following this up, I've talked about migration. And uh, my discussion on financing, I've already finished. Really, how can we get more money to these low-income countries without destabilizing their macroeconomic stability? That seems to be the challenge. And of course, political visibility. Um, But to respond, you just can't do it piecemeal. It should be part of an integrated national development plan. If you take it one line, you can go so far, but it's been demonstrated again and again that uh, you can succeed in uh, immunizing children if you focus on immunization alone, then they die of malaria. So you need a comprehensive plan. And here the private sector should feel comforted because um, uh, uh, here I think everybody agrees uh, that uh, uh, the private sector, private sector-led economic growth is the foundation of uh, recovery. And these things are very important, all of them. Good governance, security. Uh, You know, people sometimes sleep with the chickens and goats in the same room. And uh, I used to have a radio piece in Uganda advising them not to do this. But when you go to the village, say, why do you do this? say, my goat or chicken will be stolen. So... Uh, it's important. All these things are a very important background to uh, whatever we want to do in the health sector and it should be part of a national government response, to long-term vision there. Uh, Let's now come to the private sector Uh, and I'll just describe for you uh, uh, how it is in many uh, African countries. Those are the categories of uh, Uh, private health services providers. You have the traditional practitioners who many countries now have got laws which recognize and regulate them. And they have a major contribution to play because many people actually consult them. They have got traditional drugs. And the African Union has now almost not completed yet a decade on traditional medicine. But side by side with them, are also witch doctors. These are people who may kill a baby uh, because uh, they believe that it will help to stop uh, you know, your business succeeding or cure you of AIDS or have sex with a one-year-old, that type of thing. So you have this, this sometimes distinguishing between the two is a challenge. Then there are also informal health workers. These people, they, uh, they sell drugs in the market, in the hot sun, in the dust, and so on. But in some places, they are the only people who are there. There are no regular clinics. There are no trained people. And uh, they are tolerated. Sometimes when you tell local leaders to close down a clinic like that, or you go around the market uh, clearing the people who are peddling these drugs, the local leaders will tell you to stop it because it's their only source of uh, health services. And then, of course, we have the traditional professionals. Now, if you look at the traditional professionals, uh, the NGO, not-for-profit, in many sub-Saharan countries are a major player. 40 to 60% of health services in some countries are provided by these people. Uh, previously, they were set up by missionaries, religious people. They are faith based. But uh, since some time now, those religious bases of theirs in the mother countries are not supporting them so much for various reasons. So, the governments have gone on to do memoranda with them, uh, like in Uganda, for example, wherever there is an NGO health unit. Government does not put another unit there instead government signs an MOU with that unit and then provides money to them that 's how many of them have continued to be afloat and uh, your group here, the private sector can look what, look at how to work with them uh, here this, is it a, a, a divinity department or something here um, a private for profit uh, this um, In countries where there are insurance schemes, these are doing well. In South Africa, it's booming. In uh, in, in, uh, uh, Zimbabwe, before the problems which they have now, they had very good private health services. In Kenya, they have got very good uh, private health services based on insurance schemes. So I think insurance as a way of financing is something which, again, the private sector can look at and partner with them to promote uh, uh, particularly tertiary health services. But it can go all the way down too. Uh, And then uh, PPPs (coughs) is also something to look at. Uh, These donation schemes here, some of them have been great, really great. If you look at uh, uh, control of the so-called neglected diseases, filariasis, schistosomiasis. Uh, even leprosy. We've been running them on donation schemes, 100%, but they are integrated into the system. It's uh, the, 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 the donors, the GSK and so on, uh, give uh, the money maybe through WHO, I mean the drugs through WHO, and then they are integrated into the system. Jeff is here, the, the, Mark is doing, done a great job in, uh, in um, Botswana and elsewhere. And then also in many countries now, uh, these uh, types of uh, services are contracted out, cleaning, laundry, food, pharmacies, and again, those are opportunities for the private sector. Um, Private pharmaceutical industries, the African Union, they have got a program on work promoting local manufacturing, sufficiency in drugs. In, in, in the and the talk is that look the disease burden is here, also the business should be here. And the insecurity of uh, having to import drugs made by other people, uh, anything can happen. So, uh, this is uh, being very much encouraged in Africa. And uh, just uh, is it this month or last month? Last month, in Uganda, Cipla opened a, a big plant which they hope to use to produce antiretroviral drugs and malaria drugs. And uh, these are opportunities because the market is there, and I hope that with uh, better ways of regulating the private sector, reducing the cost of business, the business people will find it to their own advantage to transfer technology to Africa rather than try and do it uh, uh, elsewhere, like, for example, is happening in Asia. There are a few of these, but again, this, there are opportunities here. But we have to create the environment which enables all this to happen. And how do we do this? Already many countries have been put online to take this route. Private sector-led economic growth, liberalisation, privatisation, a lot of companies which were run by government have now been sold off to the private sector. And uh, it is now up to uh, the the private sector to look at an Africa which sounds hopeful and to come in and play their role here, making profit as well as helping to uh, to help the the, the countries. And there is regional integration. In East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi have formed a customs union. SADC SADAC have a customs union. And so on. So it is possible to do business. It's a bigger market in the region, Comesa, and so on. Uh, and um, the whole atmosphere, really, in Sub-Saharan Africa, is favorable to private uh, uh, sector investments. And uh, what areas uh, lend themselves? We are at Duke, education and training. Africa is short of health workers. So pre-service training is open to the private sector. And there are many uh, investors who have opened private health training institutions in Africa. Aga Khan is one of the big ones. But uh, elsewhere in, I think, Tanzania, there are two. Some Indian group has opened a school there, and also Touch Foundation uh, from this country has opened another school, and I think there is a third school. Also, KCMC, you've been talking about KCMC in Moshi, that's also a private uh, school. Uh, Uganda, too, has got uh, one private medical school which has just started, and those ones, they say they are training uh, nurses for export. So the opportunities are there. Uh, let's look at how we can move this forward. And insurance schemes, I told you about the, this, this. I think, again, there's opportunities there, health insurance schemes, separate from social health insurance schemes, which some governments are pushing. And those are resisted. They are resisted by the private sector. Because the private sector is saying governments should not be in the business of doing business. So in Kenya, it went all the way to parliament. And uh, it didn't succeed. The same has happened in Uganda. But if the private sector did take this up, I think opportunities are there. And then you can, it would, can be linked with the uh, tertiary health, uh, health care services, which you can link like they have done in Thailand to medical tourism. You put a beautiful hospital on the shores of Lake Victoria and people come and get their cataracts done or their bypasses. Then they go and see the animals and enjoy the sun. Uh, Research also is important uh, because really it's, it's important to have knowledge. What is happening to the new anti-malaria drugs to the ARVs, uh, what uh, directions should we, uh, should we, should we be uh, uh, adjusting our movements on? So uh, I think research, I think the private sector can play a role there, but <coughs> I'm not sure how you make money there, but maybe through developing new products. Um, and This is uh, my last slide. And uh, what uh, would I like to say here? The first bullet there is really saying that I think the private sector is. We are waiting at the Global Health Workforce Alliance to work with the private sector in supporting the health workforce. And if the private sector could, if they are interested, I would not like to ask you to come and then you come because you want to be polite to me. Many of you are my friends. I would like to work with you because it's something that you feel you would like to do yourselves. Can you please organize yourselves globally, regionally, and then we can move forward together? And could we then develop ways of working together once you've organized yourselves? And I would be prepared, Kathy, if I come to the board with uh, a proposal for us to establish uh, a working group on the private sector contributions, she's given me double thumbs up, (laughs) You, you people have not seen. So the board is waiting, the board is waiting, and I would like really to hope that the next two days which we are going to spend here, we are going to spend time looking at all these issues and hopefully agree that we are committed to moving forward together and that the movement will be solid and concrete. The people of sub-Saharan Africa are looking forward to working with you. A lot of them believe in the private sector. And the private sector is truly the hope for Africa to get out of its economic crisis. And a private sector, which is supporting civil society or out of which civil society emerges, middle class, and so on, is the one which is going to bring stability to Africa. And it's stability which will bring economic growth. It's economic growth which will solve all this this crisis which we are talking about. So uh, you are welcome. I look forward very much indeed to the next two days. And I also want to thank Mike, Victor, and all of you, my friends, for taking the trouble to invite me and to uh, give me the opportunity to speak to such a great audience. Thank you.
0: <clears throat> Thank you so much, Francis, for uh, these very thoughtful comments. He- We thought we would take maybe one or two questions. If someone has a compelling question, he'd be happy to hear a tough question. Anyone? Yes. Just identify yourself, please.
1: Hi, I'm Michelle McMurray from the Aspen Institute. i so enjoyed your comments, I actually just got back from East Africa, and one of the things I heard from the First Lady of Zambia is that some of our world economic policies might have inadvertently contributed to some of the workforce shortages we're facing. And in Zambia, in particular, they're just emerging from a 10-year hiring freeze in the public sector
2: and a salary, severe salary increase caps that prevented them from hiring new teachers and new physicians within the public sector. So as you showed your graph, of the declining investment from the public sector in the healthcare workforce, I'm wondering if, in your work, you've seen the effects of these policies firsthand. Uh, yes, I've lived them. I've lived them literally. In 1997, uh, the uh, uh, government of Uganda, has overall uh, civil service reforms, they said this one. Uh, shall I name the the culprit? Sure. <laughs> I would like to go back to Geneva and back to Uganda. Wow. Adventure. <laughs> uh, uh, the government was advised, like all other government, including the government of Zambia, your civil service is over bloated. You have to cut it down, and maybe that was correct, but then don't recruit for three years. So there was a recruitment ban, and health workers who were already in short supply were graduating, paid for, their training paid for by the public, and they were on the streets. And of course they left the country. Similarly, the discussion i was talking about um, is it compatible for macroeconomic stability to coexist with provision of basic social services that's your question i know that zambia is one of the countries which is affected by this ratio public wage against uh, i think gdp there is a ratio which you have to stick within that ratio and then they can't increase public service salaries. They can't recruit additional teachers, health workers. But people are dying in Zambia. Look at Zambia's life expectancy. It's one of those. That's why I'm looking for economists to discuss with those other economists. Because for sure, as a human being, I, I, it, you know, as a clinician, you can't watch people dying. It affects you directly. Uh, and then even if you raise money, they say, "We keep, keep, keep your money. You don't bring it here. It's happening in Africa. It's one of the sources of the problem. And that's why we have set up the Task Force on Financing to look at options to this. If
0: anyone else. Yes, in the back.
2: My name is Papka and I'm with the IntraHealth International. Thank you for a very thoughtful and thorough presentation. Um, would you like to comment on what the, um, your group is doing in terms of promoting the diaspora mm. to better participate in providing solutions? solution? Yeah. Thank you. It's a very good question. And you are a member of the diaspora, which, which, where where are your roots? (laughs) Uh, 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 Where are your roots? Senegal. Uh, Senegal, very good, yeah. (laughs) Senegal is one of the countries which uh, I think uh, they educated their people quite a lot, and there are very many of them outside the the country. Um, Yes, we are working with uh, the diaspora. The, uh, that uh, uh, working group on migration, they are in it, and um, uh, of course, it is. Uh, uh, we are just just beginning. I have received proposals from about four four uh, Africans who are based. I think one is here, and the other three are in the UK. They have sent me proposals, one of them, the best developed is a guy from the Gambia. Uh, He's a urologist in some place north of uh, Scotland. And uh, he goes home for the last 10 years. He goes uh, and spends five weeks with friends and does clinics uh, in the country. But he has now written up a proposal to fund a hospital. An NGO hospital, and is looking for donors. I don't know. Again, this is something we can discuss tomorrow, how we can partner with uh, these groups of people. But diaspora, uh, even the African Union would like to work with you, and many countries are now making it possible for you to have dual citizenship, so that you can be an American and a, and a Senegalese at the same time which in the past this was seen as sort of uh, subversive, but it's no longer seen like that. It's seen as an investment. And and your money, which you send back, I hope you send some too, uh, (laughs) is in many countries, it's now the top source of foreign foreign currency. In Uganda, it's now the leading source of uh, uh, foreign currency. So we welcome that. We, 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 we don't discourage that, but we have to work out ways. I don't know. It's not clear in my mind how we can work with the diaspora. But you have organized yourselves in various parts of the world. They are, you've got your own groups. And uh, I think most countries where you go to, you are getting
0: more welcome now than in the past.